0: we gotta get those those listeners you know yeah
1: clickbait hubs clickbait (laughs) I'm Danielle Yett, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, casually known as ICS. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member, which is what we call our students. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
0: Each week, we'll invite a new panel of guests, including past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. With us today, we have Nick Ansel, senior member in theology. We'll introduce Nick when we get to our second segment.
1: Mark, since you're new to the podcast, we're going to initiate you with our set of intro questions. Are you ready?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Question one, what was your favorite book in your childhood?
0: I have two answers to this question, but I'll keep them brief. The first one, I was really into the Redwall books, which are fantasy books about rodents, mostly. They focus primarily on a mouse. But there are all types of rod- rodents involved. And they have battles and, and such.
1: As rodents do.
0: The, yes, as rodents do. And my dad, he... I don't know why. Um, I don't know. This was his highbrow nature or something. But my dad told me that I had to stop reading Redwall and, and read classic literature, which leads me to my second book. My dad led me to the classic literature section in the library and... I looked at the wall and I saw Of Mice and Men. That sounds similar to Red Wall. I'm going to read that. And then I stayed up all night reading it and wept in my bed when I was 12. So um, (laughs) that is my favorite book of my childhood.
1: Very, very different examples, (laughs) but equally great. Uh, Second of three intro questions. For our listeners who live in or may visit Toronto, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop in ICS's hometown? And since you live in what might be considered a suburb of Toronto, Hamilton.
0: Those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. If you know the relationship between Hamilton and Toronto, Hamilton is the working class little brother of Toronto who resents their little brotherness to Toronto. And so calling us a suburb, that is offensive in some ways.
1: I'm sorry, Hamiltonians.
0: We we accept your apology. (laughs) So for Hamilton... One of my best friends runs a coffee shop in Hamilton called The Canon. And The Canon is known primarily for its relationship to the filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. Because he, on numerous occasions, has extolled the virtues of The Canon, including saying how much he loves their pancakes. Except that they don't sell pancakes, they sell waffles. That's the joke. (laughs) So The Canon is great, and then as far as a bar... Uh, the ship is an amazing bar that is very ship-themed. You kind of feel like you're in the 17th century crossing the Atlantic or something.
1: The ship, the cannon, all your mice battles. There's a, there's a theme here.
0: <laughs> I guess there is. I don't find myself as so much of a fantasy guru, but I guess it's just embedded into my life.
1: Maybe. So we'll see how this comes out in the third intro question, which is possibly also the most controversial Who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time?
0: So my background is in political philosophy. And the story that political philosophy tells about itself is that it started with the ancients, Plato, Aristotle, and then you might include Augustine and then maybe Aquinas. And then it jumps all the way to Machiavelli. After Machiavelli, it talks about Hobbes. Hobbes is the foundation of all Western mm-hmm. political philosophy. And then after Hobbes, you have this guy, John Locke. And John Locke, in my view, sort of just rips off Hobbes and takes the genius of Hobbes, which is a sort of maniacal genius, and tones it down a little bit. So I've not read very much of the epistemology of, of John Locke, but in terms of his political philosophy, although it is very foundational for America... I'm not a huge fan of.
1: Is that really controversial?
0: Okay. I think that John Locke did not offer a meaningful contribution to Western political philosophy.
1: Ooh, those are fighting words. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That gets us to the first of our new regular segments, Don't Miss This. In this segment, we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events, and anniversary in these same worlds, and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So Mark, we'll start with you. What's something you think our listeners should not miss out on?
0: So I'm going to hijack this question and make it Hamilton-centered. On November 21st at 8 p.m. at the Artword Art Bar, which is on Colburn Street in Hamilton, my poetry group, the Sad Boys Literary Society, is having our annual poetry reading. You can come on out and you can buy one of our books and listen to us read poetry and enjoy a beverage if you like. We would love to see you there.
1: And generally being Sad Boys?
0: And generally being sad boys, which there will certainly be part of. Though I think the saddest boy will be playing piano and not reciting poetry, sadly.
1: Oh, maybe that is the source of sadness.
0: That is the source of sadness, yes.
1: Hamilton has a huge art poetry scene out there.
0: I will tell you one reason why that is. Tell me. Because it's a lot cheaper to live there.
1: (laughs) Oh, all the all the poor artists live out in Hamilton then. That's true. Oh, that's yes. good to know. Um, my don't miss this. First is just going to be a quick replug for the open house happening at ICS here on December 1st from 5 to 7. You can come by whenever you like. We'll have hors d'oeuvres and you can see our new space at 59 St. George Street. Uh, and you can also have a chance to hang out with our students and staff and faculty And then, starting at 7:30 p.m. in the beautiful Knox College Chapel, we're going to be having our Advent concert with Incontra Vocal Ensemble and Matthew Otto directing. And we're selling tickets for that part, the concert. So you can visit icscanada.edu to buy yours. So that's my that's my plug. And then my personal don't miss this item is something called the Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada. So it's actually something I discovered a couple months ago, and I was reminded of it because American Thanksgiving is coming up this week. Don't miss that either. But it doesn't, it doesn't touch on the States, really. It's for Canada. Um, but I really wish I knew of something like this for the States. Mm. If anybody knows of anything comparable to this, please tell me. It would be great to hear about it. Anyway, what this is, uh, it's a comprehensive atlas that was published by Canadian Geographic, and it took them a few years of really detailed research led by a number of Canadian indigenous communities to get this thing out, and it's four volumes on First Nations, the Inuit, the Métis, and the whole truth and reconciliation process that's happening up here, and it talks about like their histories, the treaties, food, language, rights and practices, everything. It's available online, which is super convenient, uh, but the print version is supposed to include this like massive map that details all the mm. like movements and like progress of all these indigenous peoples and it's supposed to be gigantic. So that's very tempting to get the print version. But the whole idea is that it does so much to kind of make this information available uh, especially for kids but for anyone and it's just it's a really impressive piece of work, I think. Uh, you should check yeah. it out, Indigenous Peoples Atlas of Canada.
0: That sounds amazing. On a related note, I found out 2 weeks ago that I am related to Andrew Jackson. Oh, how? Um, my dad told me that his mom's sister married in or something to the Jacksons. Not super closely related, but it's there, which is weird.
1: So in the second of our new regular segments, we want to give you a glimpse of what it's like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. And so we will simply be asking our guest, what are you working on? We'll be talking about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So welcome, Nick. Hi. Hi. We ask our guests a standard set of three intro questions. So first, tell me, what was your favorite childhood book?
2: I'm just going to pick a couple of things. So there was a book of, I think it was poems, and it's called When We Are Six. I um, was lent some books by a neighbor when I was five, and this was in the pile. And when it came time to hand them back, I hung on to this one, which was a bit naughty. And I think it was mainly the title there's a poem I think it's quite well known at the beginning which starts when I was one I'd just begun when I was two I was nearly new, kind of thing and then it and it builds up to this now I'm six I want to be six for ever and ever and there was something about that that appealed to me because I wasn't six yet and uh, so it was this kind of horizon of oh there's this special age coming and I couldn't I didn't give the book back which it sort of now tells me there's something about my my sense of who I was that got connected to this book. So that's the first one. And then the next one I'm going to throw in also from pretty early on is the um, that wonderful book, uh, Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. And I had an uncle who was um, quite sort of, well, not just literate, but literary. and And so I got a ton of the really kind of... Sort of quite cutting edge kind of things from him, but uh, where the wild things are—it's just one of those magical books that's—it's um, just delightful, not in a safe way. It's—it's it's like the you know the protagonist, the boy is—he's uh, a bit kind of naughty, but it's all about his imagination and him dealing with just being a kid. And it's one of those touching stories that's also adventurous. It's not sentimental. There you go. And The Wild Things ties in with stuff I've worked on in recent uh, years, in fact. So the, the theme of wildness is part of my ongoing theological investigation. So perhaps that book, you know, touched me pretty deep down. You know,
1: Set the path for you. We'll have to come back to The Wild Things. Indeed. So second of three intro questions... For our listeners who may live in Toronto or want to visit, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop in ICS's hometown?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to go for coffee shop rather than bar. So I'm a bit of a coffee addict. I'd love to be able to sort of name some kind of indie place that is just one of them. But actually... I do quite like Starbucks, St. Arbucks as I, as I call it, because you can they differ. And you, you find, I found one that I like, and it all depends on who's working there as to the kind of vibe that it has. So um, it may sound a bit mainstream to some people, but these mainstream places can actually have their own indie kind of thing going on as well.
1: The third and last intro question is also the most controversial. Who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time? Nick.
2: Right. So um, I'm going to say Aristotle. Aristotle's been hugely influential, of course. Um, and there's like a, you know there's a kind of conservative Aristotelianism, but there's also the kind of the Aristotelian left. So there's a, there's a, a fantastic um, essay, early essay by uh, Pannenberg, the theologian, on the um, Aristotelian left, um, which is just a very, very enjoyable read. So all kinds of quite radical stuff has come out of the Aristotelian uh, tradition. Here's the thing that bugs me about the Aristotelian kind of paradigm, is meaning is just front-loaded into the system as potential, which then gets actualized. And Christian theology has really bought into this. It's bought into Plato in certain ways. It's bought into Aristotle in in the sense of God created the world, and then there's a reading of Genesis that goes along with this, so that when you get to the Sabbath, God stops creating and rests. Uh, So it's all redemption and sustaining, but God doesn't do any more creating. But you've got all this potential there, which then gets unfolded or activated or whatever. And I don't buy that. Um, I don't buy it as a reading of Genesis at all. Because God resting on the Sabbath, that language of resting, is all to do with enthronement. It's like God's kingdom is established, set up, and God then is enthroned, and it's like history is really going to get going now because the conditions are set for history. It doesn't mean that God rests from anything, and that includes creating. So I believe in ongoing creation. And how can you not? I mean, if you, there's so many things that you can appeal to here, but if you're a parent, you know that when your child is born, Someone new has come into the world, and the newness hasn't simply emerged, it's arrived. And I think one can say that it's the biblical tradition that really brings the the notion of radical newness into everyday discourse, and that you, you don't get this radical recognition of newness Perhaps anywhere else. I think if you're a sort of uh, a strict Aristotelian or even a kind of groovy radicalized one, I don't think you can really take that on board. And for Christians who want a, a, something like an eschatologically open view of creation and history, um, I just think it's the wrong place to start. And I, let me just say the other thing on the issue of wonder, both of them have wonder as the origin of philosophy itself, but for Aristotle, Wonder is the kind of it gets you going, but you philosophize about the nature of the world, and the aim is to answer the question that's been set in motion, and then the wonder has disappeared. But the experience of wonder is something that doesn't get explained away. Mystery, in its depth, can be experienced and appreciated, but it can't be understood. It's not as if we can't understand it, but God can because then it just becomes an issue of the finitude of our perspective. It's like God does not understand mystery, because God relates to things appropriately and knows things fully and intimately and in covenant. And mystery isn't the sort of thing that can be understood. It can be known, but not understood. So Aristotle, yes, he was brilliant. Yes, he's right to make a break with uh, Plato But um, let's not be uh, confined to, you know, some of his fundamental assumptions because they're too limiting.
1: Well, there you go. (laughs) How's that that for strong, strong opinions? (laughs) Well, and you'll be able to get into it more when we get to the main point of our segment, which is what are you working on, right?
2: Right. So what am I working on? What are you working on? A lot of things. So I've got an ongoing project on the book of Revelation and I hope to write a commentary on the book of Revelation at some point and I've got a publisher interested in that who basically said yes but that's a little way off. For now the most immediate project is writing an essay on the book of Revelation and final judgment because there are two other scholars who are involved in the kind of final judgment as annihilation versus final judgment as eternal, eternal suffering debate, which is is going on. It's fairly acute at the moment in certain circles. And the plan was for the three of us to actually write and get our pieces all published in the same journal at the same time. So there would be a theme issue. So there's, there is a journal that's, you know, interested in, In doing this, and my take on final judgment is is a bit different. So um, the Book of Revelation, sometimes called John's Apocalypse, uh, and we get the word apocalyptic from that. And uh, there are different definitions of apocalyptic in in biblical studies. So I have my own kind of definition, which is there are two fundamental things that happen in biblical apocalyptic, at least. First of all, there is a transition from the old age to the new age or the age that is uh, to come. So you get a transition. The the transition between the two ages is dealt with in the apocalyptic genre. Um, There's a lot in the New Testament that's overtly apocalyptic, which hasn't been really recognized as such. A famous passage in Romans 8, where you have creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth, for example, what you've got there is the present creation is itself groaning as it gives birth to the new creation. There's a cosmic birth process going on. So birthing language and the pain and struggle, as well as the hope of birthing, is is very much, as it were, native to apocalyptic discourse. And along with the, the birth pangs, you have the death throes of the old age passing away. The other thing that is a characteristic of apocalyptic is the the reunion of the heavens and the earth. The marriage of heaven and earth would be one of the ways that this is described, and that's certainly what you find at the end of the book of Revelation, is the marriage of heaven and earth, which... It's not the marriage of Jesus and the church, thank you very much. It's like almost all commentators say this, and everybody says this. If you read it carefully, it's heaven and earth. And Jesus there as the bridegroom represents the earth, and it's the city that represents the heavens. And there is an aside that refers to the good works of the saints as being part of how this city is, as it were, clothed in some way, but it is not a focus on the church as bride. That's an imposing of a misreading of, of some material in Paul onto the book of Revelation. Now, here's where I differ in terms of final judgment, is I believe that the book of Revelation is the transition from the old age to the new age has, in fact, for us occurred in that this is seen as centered in the events of AD 70 and the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, amongst other things. The temple is a microcosm for the macrocosm of creation itself, which includes heaven and earth. When the temple is erased, that is the end of the old age. So this transition between the ages has um, in some sense occurred, but with the the important qualifier that most of us live still in the old age, not in the new age. But the fundamental judgment, quote unquote, has occurred already. But the judgment is in the service of putting things right, or healing. So it's not just restorative, it's actually creating something new. So this is a judgment Unto salvation, that's my phrase for, for trying to capture this. That is what I'll be arguing in my opinion. I've got 10,000 words, so I, I probably, you know, you listen to me going on and on about this, um, and you think that may possibly won't be enough, but it's quite a lot for a journal article.
1: So you've written about this before, right? You have your book, The Annihilation of Hell. So how is your current work building off of
2: that? So I wrote a book called The Annihilation of Hell, which is um, was originally a doctoral Thesis, and it's on Jürgen Moltmann's eschatology, and I have an appendix on the Book of Revelation where I explore all of this. So, how is my piece going to be different? Because that's a fairly extensive um, appendix, and I think you've possibly read that.
1: It's it's a big book. It's a big appendix. It's talking about big things.
2: It is. That's right. So, um, there's things. There's some things I'm looking to sharpen up the definition of apocalyptic. I'll you know bring. To the fore, I think in that discussion, it's I talk about it as the transition between the two ages, but not the reconnection of heaven and earth. Although that's there, it's like I, for some reason, didn't, don't bring that into my definition. So um, I'm going to sharpen that up. One of the things I want to do is is bring out um, the motif of the the, the judgment of Jezebel, uh, which is alluded to for sure. In the book and, and go back into, um, the uh, Old Testament portrayal of that and, um, and then see now how is there hope for Jezebel? Even for Jezebel, there's, there's, there is, it's a judgment unto salvation. Um, now how am I going to argue that? One of the ways I'm thinking of arguing that is by having something on, so there's a a king of the, the southern kingdom uh, called Manasseh and he's sort of singled out and um, you think if you read the account in 1st 2nd Kings that this is the absolute low point of of Israel's history and it's just simply condemned right if you read 1st 2nd Chronicles we learn Manasseh repents and it turns out that Manasseh is the what is it now? Grandfather, I think, of Josiah. So it's like you have the low point, which is also the turning point. So there's a future for Manasseh. No Bible reader is going to dispute that. But if you just read First and Second Kings, there's there's no way that you would uh, think that there was any grounds for that. So um, the writer, the writer of uh, the Chronicler, as he or she is known, or they, or whatever, um, are not setting out to say 1st, 2nd Kings has got it wrong. They're opening things up, right? So the New Testament will open certain motifs up. Some things do get um, expanded, and you can, you can see a future even for Jezebel if you read the book of Revelation a certain way, and um, you read in hope And that that transforms what you see.
1: That's great.
0: In the third of our new regular segments, we want to talk directly to the professors of the future and their professors today. Moving on from what you've been working on, we will talk about what it is like to be a scholar and how we made our way to academic lives. We hope over time to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology with an emphasis on teaching philosophy in undergraduate programs. This week, we will each talk a little about something that happened during our own undergraduate years that moved us in the direction of where we are now as graduate students or faculty at the ICS. So tell me a little bit about your story.
2: Well, I was an undergrad in the early 80s, um, and I studied at um, the uh, University of Bristol in the UK in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. Mm. Um, to say something about myself going into that situation, first of all, um, there's a book it's published in the mid-90s, and it's called The Post-Evangelical by a fellow called Dave Tomlinson from mm. the UK and uh, I'll say something about this phrase post evangelical because it seems that, that Dave uh, coined this and, and this is a, a label if you like that I am happy to identify with although I do interpret it a particular way so his argument uh, was that um, evangelicalism um, was, was really formed during the time of modernity It's a faith response to modernity but there are a lot of evangelicals they're actually at home in postmodernity and because they're at home in postmodernity they don't they don't feel too at home in evangelicalism because mm. of its home is modernity so what who are you if you're a kind of evangelical but you're at home in Post-modernity, not modernity. So he says, "Well, maybe you're a post-evangelical." Uh, it's a kind of a way of being an evangelical. You could say, I would say that. Once you name it that way, it also it subtly changes. You know, uh, it doesn't just name the world; it changes it. So, um, but I I feel that I was kind of always, you know, on a path to becoming a post-evangelical, even when I was an evangelical in the early '80s um so because i was not at home in modernity and and so i was at home and not at home in evangelicalism and i was influenced by conservative evangelicalism and open evangelicalism and some progressive evangelicalism as well at that time but mainly the conservative stuff i suppose was a bit more dominant and then gradually the other other sides kind of became more central to me so the theology religious studies department i went into modernity had you know the power and so i had the problem of not feeling at home in that i felt i was on the defensive so that's really how i would characterize a lot of my undergraduate experience um i was on the defensive I mean, my own intuitions when I first started was so you do courses in religious studies as well as theology, and then you sort of specialize and you get the parting of the waves. And, you know, a number of students will go off and do theology and not religious studies or the other, and they will just not, you know, they'll Mm. do one or the other. That's typically uh, what happens, which is a bit of a shame. And I ended up doing more kind of uh, theology. Uh, stuff, but I was on the on the defensive. I did get to meet some people who were part of the Reformational movement, the Neo-Cyprian movement. Uh, midway through the time of my studies, um, one particular fellow uh, from the UK, Richard Russell, who. He taught with Cal at, uh, in Chicago at Trinity and, um, he spent quite a bit of time in Canada at McMaster and hmm. did a master's degree at McMaster in Hamilton. And anyway, he ended up in the same church as me. And so I got to know him and some other people. And, got into the resources from uh, of the scholarship from that tradition so then i really did a lot of work in terms of assumptions and presuppositions that are made in theology so i was sort of on the offensive but still defensive but there was there was no, almost no space in the curriculum for doing that kind of work mm but i just did it anyway i just made my essays into sort of tackling these fundamental assumptions even though i've been asked to write on something else so it was sort of one paragraph on the thing i was asked to <laughs> write on and several pages on this other stuff and, and so forth so it was a bit of a struggle and um and i i graduated and so i read a lot of um you know quote unquote secular feminist uh, literature and and it was like Wanting to embrace that issue and the discussion and yeah. the, the imagination of it and, and so forth, and not be over and against this this energy and uh, and and so forth that was coming from outside of Christianity in for the most part. Or well, I was also reading the, feminist theology as well, and then I brought that with me. Um, plus the sort of work I'd done on assumptions and trying to rethink the nature of theology and so forth, brought both of those kind of set of concerns with me to ICS Mm. in the mid-'80s as I came to do uh, a master's degree, what was called an MPhil in those days. Uh, And I I wanted to be more constructive, really. Mm. So once I got to the Institute, I didn't have to be on the defensive anymore. Um, so I, I worked with Jim Altheus in philosophical theology and, and hermeneutics. And I gradually moved from sort of um reflecting on, you know, the deep structure of, of theology hmm. and what, what it was or what it could be yeah. and getting more into the nitty gritty hmm. of the discipline. And so as a student at the institute, um in as a master's student I worked at, in the end, on Rosemary Ruther's uh, Feminist Theology, which uh, she, she worked on providing a, a sense of what feminist theology could do in the different areas of mm. s- systematic theology, for example. And so that got me into those areas more. Mm. Um, and then um, I worked on Yoga Moltmann for my uh, dissertation uh, uh, as a doctoral student and more into nitty-gritty and, and I've, I've got really into biblical studies. So that's sort of nitty gritty stuff. And I'll, I'll give you an example of, of just something that I had published, which sort of exemplifies this. So I have a, an essay which was part of a collection from, um, Society of Biblical Literature Scholars. And the, the, the collection is called Gender Agenda Matters. Hmm. Gender agenda matters or and I actually suggested the title for this thing. <laughs> um and and I have a piece in there and it's entitled Too Good to be true question mark the female pronoun for God in Numbers eleven verse fifteen. And it focuses in a sense on one word which is only two letters in Hebrew in terms of the consonants. I mean there are some vowels where Moses refers to God as you as we would say you know in English and it looks like the feminine form is, is and uh, so and I explored this That's one word but two letters and very interestingly the the feminine form of uh, you in in Hebrew um, so the first letter and the last letter if you put them together you actually have this word Hmm. Uh, for for you, so and it's it shows up in this form in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you wonder if it's an alpha omega kind of formulation. Hmm. Nobody's quite figured out this this strange form in the de- some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are these theories around whether this is the feminine form or whether it's a masculine form that's been contracted. Whether it's um, um, a rare form, an archaic form that somehow survived. So there's all these different theories for for accounting for a feminine-looking pronoun Hmm. um, here. And I argue that it's a genuine feminine pronoun. and, Hmm. and, And it takes me into other texts and passages and other possible examples of this. But it's really, really detailed kind of quite specialist work. And I had to learn a lot of the sort of specialist stuff as I was researching it. And that's kind of the way I like to do things anyway. Uh, but it relates to, you know, gender language for God. So it relates to this big kind of theological uh, question and, mm. and feminist hermeneutics and trust and suspicion in hermeneutics and reading scripture and so forth. So I love that deep integration between really doing detailed work and the so the, the whole issue of assumptions and presuppositions, still working on that. So I think I've, you know, achieved some integration uh, compared to, you know, where I was at in the early 80s and this kind of wanting to be constructive yeah, as well. So I, I could now go back and do my undergraduate program <laughs> and and really enjoy exploring assumptions in terms of the things I was actually asked to write on, you know. <clears throat> uh, but I was not in the space to do that at the time. Yeah. And um that's that's just uh, life at times you can feel a bit out of it and alienated and that makes you restless um and you should embrace the restlessness and and get yourself on a journey where you can find you know some rest um, yeah. some peace um and um turn that into something positive
0: hmm. well thank you very much that's great to hear
2: so how does that work for you in your in your work or your your journey?
0: So my journey really started in grade 12. In grade 12, one of my teachers, Mr. Clark, was teaching me how to read literary texts using literary theories. And in specific, I was reading Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck with Marxist eyes and really cultivating a sensibility for injustice in the world and a sense in which I wanted to address those injustices but grade 12 was rolling through and I wanted to go to university at all these programs and all these places but I didn't get in anywhere so my mom who really wanted me to go to university right away she said mark you're going to reply to redeemer and I said no and she said if you don't apply to redeemer you can't use the car anymore and I was convinced I applied to Redeemer and ended up being one of the best decisions of my life. At Redeemer, I found professors who really engaged with me, who cared about me, and who were willing to be interested in the things that I was interested in. Two specific professors come to mind. The first is David Koizis, who was professor of political science at Redeemer. The second was Craig Bartholomew, who is professor of philosophy, And I just could not get enough of his classes. I didn't plan on having a minor in philosophy. I didn't really know what philosophy was. But when I was in his class, I just wanted more and more. And so I ended up with a minor just because I had all these electives that I took with him. But when I went and did my MA at McMaster, it was in political theory. And that was great. And I love political theory. But at the same time, I felt political theory wasn't going to be able to bring itself into dialogue with hermeneutics in the way that I wanted it to. So after taking a detour through teaching grade seven and then high school for a couple of years, I wound up here at ICS wanting to see where political theory and hermeneutics can meet. And that's kind of my story.
1: And that brings us to the fourth and last of our new regular segments, and to copy the example of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, our favorite segment every week, What is Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun, the movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drinks we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Mark, what's your pleasure?
0: For this week, I have two pleasures. One of which I'm going to tell you about my favorite sports talk radio program. My favorite sports talk radio program runs from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. That program is called Good Show. Good Show features two prominent hosts, J.D. Bunkus and Ben Ennis. And they're fun guys that are just like you and me talking about sports. And mostly I just like to listen to them because they seem like they're my friends even though I've never met them. So I hope that you enjoy that program. The second thing I would like to say about My Pleasure is a new album. This album is by an American singer-songwriter named Laura Gibson. Her new album is called Goners. It just came out and I've been playing it on repeat for a long time. It's really cool.
1: How did you find find her? her music? Yeah,
0: I found Laura Gibson a few years ago. I'm not quite sure. I really only liked a few songs. There's one called Um, Milk-Eyed, Heavy pollen that I was really into. And then Spotify has their release radar, which I listened through because they tailor to my interests. And her single came up on that um, album, and I just can't stop listening to it, really, for the past two weeks. That's all I've listened to. And she sounds a lot like Joanna Newsom, but a little bit less weird, which, depending on your mood, is a good thing. The weirdness is good in its own place.
1: Does Laura Gibson have any songs about sports radio?
0: She does not have any songs about sports radio that I know of. There is a really good song about sports by a band called Wolfpack. And the song is called Game Winner. It's really, really good and features a, the sound of a basketball swish in the background at a key moment.
1: Well, my, my pleasure is also in the realm of music and also in the realm of weird <laughs> in some ways. This is an album that came out I guess in 2010. So I've been listening to it since 2010 and just started listening to it again yesterday. It's called Hades Town by Anaïs Mitchell. Oh yeah. And it's like a folk opera concept album which I love.
0: It's now being performed on Broadway, I think. I'm not I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that.
1: I knew they had gotten around to making it into a musical, but I hadn't heard where they have gone with that so far.
0: It also features Justin Vernon heavily, which I'm a fan of.
1: So I guess the basic premise of it is it's like a retelling of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth in more modernized kind of terms, like industrialized nation kind of stuff. It's my go-to for now.
0: And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. at You can also find us all on Twitter. You can find my co-host at Beware the Yeti. You can find me at Mark Standish. And you can also follow ICS at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. See you next time.